great. So uh, there's another picture. And, uh, well, you see what it is. And there's a window up there. And the plant's growing towards it. And I'll just leave it there through what I say in these next few minutes before we head across for the baptisms for you to reflect on. It's a profound picture, isn't it? Plant. Growing. What's it doing? You know, what's going on in that picture? Um, Today, as Flick said, is the first Sunday in what we call Partnership Month every year. Uh, You probably think, well, it's the end, right at the end of September. But for the next five Sundays, we're going to explore uh, what I've written about briefly on the front of the news sheet. We have five um, themes, five values, each beginning with I. We sometimes call them our five I's. And uh, since the formation of the church here in the way it is now, we've clung to the goal, the uh, mission statement I've put there, um, our f- the three smaller goals that we want to achieve in these five eyes, these five guiding principles. And the principle I want to talk about this morning, just very briefly, is about independence, uh, interdependence, interdependence dependence on one another and we've explored that already and of course today we're going to do we are doing so in two distinct ways we just gathered a harvest offering thank you for giving and in that we've recognized our interdependence on one another unless we give generously we can never receive If we live in a society where there isn't a giving and receiving and an acceptance of one another and interdependence, we're soon lost. And as we head across to the farm, four young people, four of the teenagers in our church are going to be baptised. They're baptised into a community. All baptism is into a community. Um, Occasionally I hear about uh, people who... um, who decide they're going to be baptised and they go get baptised in the sea somewhere or they visit uh, a church and they rush through a baptism. That actually denies what baptism is. It doesn't fulfil it. Baptism is always into a community. I'm accepting this way of living. I am following Christ. I'm choosing to walk this way together with you. It's about uh, interdependence. A few years ago... Um, I, went, uh, I went on a plane to America with someone who you don't know, who works for Oasis. She doesn't live here. And it was a really turbulent flight. I mean, it was really seriously bad. I, you know, you always get a bit of turbulence on a, on a plane. But we sat right at the back on a, I think it was a jumbo jet. And so it's always worse at the tail, isn't it? And this was a serious bout of turbulence that went on and on. And the plane just fell and then caught itself and fell and caught itself. And it got worse and worse and worse. And in the end, um, she screamed. And when I say screamed, I just don't mean, ah, she stood up. (laughs) We were supposed to have our seatbelts on and screamed. I screamed pulled her down next to me and she's quite an independent soul and she clung to me she put both her arms round my neck like she was strangling me as though this was going to help if the plane crashed you know she'd be saved by strangling me first and she continued screaming and I had to say stop stop because I knew they were going to come and sedate her someone was going to stick a needle in her and they were going to put her to sleep because if panic 
spreads across one of those planes. You're in a lot of trouble. And then the turbulence came to an end. And, uh, I mean, you know, there were drinks flying everywhere, all that kind of stuff. It was bad. And uh, we, we settled down. Now, this was on our, just beginning our way to America. And we were flying all the way across the West Coast. So it was a long, long journey. And, of course, soon the turbulence was forgotten. And my friend uh, switched on some rom-com, you know, film and sat there with her headphones on, laughing away and crying in, you know, crying, laughing, laughing, crying, as you do when you're watching a rom-com. The interesting thing, of course, about that is that in that moment of panic and turbulence, uh, she and everybody else on the plane was fully aware that we were dependent on air currents. A plane doesn't fly uh, without air. Um, without those, uh, without the air being there, no plane has ever taken to the sky. No plane is sustained in the sky. It's built aerodynamically because it's dependent upon us. Uh, it's dependent on forces beyond, still beyond our science, actually. And so, in that moment of turbulence, everyone is aware that we're on two giant wings and we're dependent on forces that we can't control. But of course, everything switches back to normal, and then everybody gets into a film, and they sit there and get a meal that they really don't want to eat, but they eat anyway because it's free. You know, that's part of being British. And you forget about what's going on outside altogether until the plane begins to come into land and everybody's slightly anxious that it's not going to overshoot the runway or crash or whatever. Most of our lives, we aren't aware of the huge influences around us. It's like air. My little grandson, um, Josiah, got four little grandsons, but um, last year um, um, we all went on holiday together and Josiah, my grandson, whom some of you know, loves sharks. I mean, he actually is the world's greatest expert on sharks. I'm not joking. And, uh, like, and uh, he loves sharks. So we bought a shark to go in a swimming pool that was made of um, transparent plastic. And he was very excited about this. So when we got to where we were going, his first thing was he wanted the shark. So I, it was in my bag, I think. So I got this out my bag, and it was a box about that big. And I got the shark out of the box, and the shark was plastic and, of course, was box-shaped, not very shark-shaped. And he said, that's not a shark. And I said, it will be when we blow it up. Now, blowing it up was really hard work, but I, I was blowing it up, and he was commentating on this. Oh, there's its dorsal fin. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to know what type. I think it's a basking shark. No, I think, no, it's not a hammerhead. Oh, I can't, I'm going, you know. So it's just a shark, Josiah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a plastic one. So I'm blowing the shark up. And he said, he commented on how it was taking shark shape. And he said to me, it looks like a shark now. And I said, that's because I'm blowing air into it because it's transparent. So he looks in it, and there's nothing in it. He can see right there, there's nothing in it. And he said to me, what's air? What's air, Grandpa? I then explained that his lungs were full of air. That was a mistake, because I didn't realise that he had not a clue what a lung was. And that took about <laughs> half an hour to explain. So we went through the lung thing, and then back to the air thing. The thing is, we're dependent on air all the time. 
if I asked you to pause and to breathe in and to breathe out, in that moment you become aware of your dependence on the air that fills this place and is all around you but you haven't noticed today until now. Flick read to us from those first uh, verses of the Bible, the first chapter, the first page, the first book of Genesis. And God saw all that he'd made. It was good. And then he says, let us create mankind, humanity, in our own image. And so he created them, male and female, he created them in his image and in his likeness. Those words, that two verses actually, have been debated and thought about down through the centuries. Whole libraries have been written about what that phrase, the image of God, means. Trust me, whole libraries have been written on it. And I could bore you for a very long time about the opinions of Von Rad, for instance, great Old Testament theologian, as opposed to Brueggemann or whatever, but that was just for people who are into that kind of stuff. The point is this. That phrase, the image of God, has become one of the most talked about phrases uh, in the world, in the Jewish community, the Christian community, the Islamic community, everywhere. And way outside of that. And it's been used, uh, if you translate the phrase, the image of God, into Latin, you get the phrase, amago the Imago Dei, the image of God, the Imago Dei. And as I say, endless PhDs have been written around this and students have debated it in seminaries. But it wasn't written, Genesis wasn't written for PhDs. And it wasn't written for debate in theological or sociological seminaries. Genesis, the story was told, of course, orally before it was ever written down. And that story, which we call Genesis 1, was written, composed for ordinary people going about their ordinary lifestyles with all the pressures of life just like you and me. It wasn't written for academics to pull apart. It was written to give hope and meaning and comfort and purpose to ordinary people like us. So what does it mean? It really means this. And actually, the strange thing is, the Bible never explains what the image of God is. It says we're all made in the image of God, and of course it never explains it, which is half the problem, because people then go on to kind of pontificate about what it does mean. But you know that saying, a text without a context is a pretext? And of course, the reason it doesn't ever unpack it, the reason it never tells us what it means is because everyone knew what it means. If I say Donald Trump to you, you know what that means. We don't have to unpack it. If I say Brexit to you, you know what that means. Well, perhaps none of us know what it means. <laughs> so you don't have to unpack it. Do you see? If I say checkers to you, you all know what checkers mean, so I don't have to unpack it. When the writer of Genesis 1 says, the image of God... Everyone knew what it meant. And what it meant was this. Across the ancient Near East, the ancient, uh, the, the Babylonians, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, etc., 
um, a king would always be known as the image of God. Every king uh, was known as the image of God. You can go check this out at the British Museum because we've now dug up from Syria uh, why Syria is so, one of the reasons why Syria is so important to the world. It is the place of Babylon. It is Mesopotamia. It is where these great, you know, first superpowers lived. But um, a few years ago, a king, a statue of a king was dug up, which is now in the British Museum. And round the bottom, you can see this image, this statue says, the image of... It actually uses the words, the image of and likeness of. We're made in God's image and likeness, it says in Genesis 1. The image of, the likeness of the king. The statue wasn't just a symbol of the king. It was deeper than that. It was a spiritual union with the king. And the king was the representative of the local God on earth. The king represented the God. And the people and, and the people honoured the king who was the representative of the God. Here's the revolution. First few verses of the whole Bible. And God said, let us make them all in our image. Not just the king, not just the priest, not just the hierarchy, not just the officials, and not just the men. Let us make them all in our image. So what being made in the image of God means is this, without doubt, you, you can talk to me more about it over lunch if you like, it means, and all the scholars agree, it means that into our being, hardwired into our being, is that we are the image and the representative of God. All that Genesis is doing, it's picking up on this common knowledge and it's saying, every man and every woman is the representative of God. And this isn't just symbolic, hardwired into who you are as a human being, whether you consider yourself spiritual or not spiritual, hardwired into the existence of your mum and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your friends and the guys who sit in the office with you tomorrow morning, hardwired into them is that we are the representatives of God on earth. Every human is spiritual. So back to Josiah, my grandson, who, who'd, who'd valued from living in an atmosphere filled with air for three years of his life without ever acknowledging or knowing that air existed. We say that we live in 3D, you know, we, and we live in a three-dimensional world. It's height and breadth and length. But then you'll say to me, no, no, it, it, it's 3D, but it's really 4D because we live in a world of height and breadth and depth and time, which we can't touch in the same way, but we live in time, 4D. Some of you are scientists in this room, and you're saying, oh, no, the scientists are now saying that we live in five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten or eleven dimensions. It's just that we can't see them. Well, however many dimensions you think we live in, here's another one. So let's stick to 3D, 4D. Here is 5D. The fifth dimension of life is that we are spiritual. And God inhabits us. We are his representatives. God is spirit. When we talk about the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as the spirit of God is sometimes termed, it's easy to get mystical and magical about it. And that gets confusing and even spooky for some people, especially people who've been to churches where someone 
under the influence of the Spirit, has prayed some dreadful thing over you. There are moments when we all become aware of God's Spirit in our life, just like that moment when I asked you to breathe in and out. Just like that moment when my grandson looks into a shark and understands for the first time air exists. Just like the occasion when my friend on the plane, scared out of her wits, becomes aware that the plane is held up by forces beyond anyone's control. But for the rest of the time, we take these things for granted. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. And we are spiritual people, hardwired in. Occasionally, we become very aware of this. A moment, a walk, a talk, a reading, a song, a prayer. Going to the back to be prayed for or over. Some word penetrates your life. Some moment where you become awesomely aware of the presence of God and his spirit. But we live in five dimensions all of the time. We're always dependent on God's spirit. Sometimes, of course, we celebrate communion. Once a month, actually. And we take bread and we take wine. That's an extraordinary thing. We take bread and we take wine. And for us, this symbolizes our connection with God. It's bread and it's wine. It's not a band, it's not lights, it's not a big PA system, it's not PowerPoints, it's not people dressed at the front looking cool. We can mistake the glamorous moment for the moment that God's spirit is present. That extraordinary moment is important, always. The moment when we become aware of God's reality beyond ourselves, intersecting with our lives, is always important. It's always important. We need those crisis experiences. But here's the truth. God's spirit is around us and with us and in us all of the time. In the bread and the wine. Notice it's bread and wine, not a band and a PA system. Bread is a simple thing, an ordinary thing. Wine is a simple thing, an ordinary thing. You'll find me in these, said Jesus. You'll find me in the ordinary, not just the spectacular. When you have the spectacular moments, wonderful. But in the ordinary moment, as we walk to the farm together, as we have coffee together, as we sing together, as you get on the bus tomorrow morning, as you go to work, as you're listening to the podcast, whatever it is, as you're in the office, God's spirit is there, the fifth dimension of life, the air that we breathe, the air that we're reliant upon. God is present by his spirit in the spectacular and the mundane. And forgive me saying this, this way, also in the crap. I often have a crap week. Every meeting I go to is crap. Everything, like, it's, it's, it's like, Get through this, get through this, another meeting, another phone call, keep going, I'm dog tired, it's half past ten at night, I'm going to make another phone call and write six more emails, etc, etc, all of that, and I feel like nothing's happening, I'm just trudging through it all. But over these years, I've learned that God's often, if God's totally present in anything, everything, But I often realize, looking back, that in the drudgery of all of that, God was at work in an extraordinary way, when in actual fact, I'm always attracted to the icing on the cake rather than the cake. 
I pray for you that you might live in five dimensions, for you are spiritual, you're in the image of God. And this interdependency we have is not just with one another, but we live as dependent on the Spirit of God in our community and our lives and our ordinary interactions and the spectacular ones. We live as dependent on that dimension of life as we are on the air we breathe. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this picture we've looked at of the plant growing towards the light, straining towards the light. Help us as we become aware of your presence which is always with, you, with us to look for the light, to live in that fifth dimension, to live for you. This is always our prayer. Amen.